In my near 21 years on this earth, I don't think a single professional sports team across the world has defined complete excellence over a sustained period of time more than the U.S. women's national soccer team, right? I started following the Women's World Cup back in 2011. That was the year they lost to Japan on penalty kicks. Since then, they've went out to win the whole thing twice, and they just started the 2023 campaign last night. And here's the kicker. The game was played at 9 p.m. Eastern time on a Friday night. What are we doing? I com- I completely understand that the game is in was played in New Zealand. 16 hours ahead of the East Coast, 19 ahead of the West Coast. I understand that. But is there no way that you can make it work to the point where Americans can watch it at a sensible time? Like, the game ended past 11 o'clock last night, and by the time the game started... All those young female soccer players that look up to the Alex Morgans, Megan Rapinos, and Rose Lavelles of the world, they all had their heads on their pillows because it was too late for them to watch the game. That is utterly ridiculous. These women have defined excellence on and off the field after winning the Ash Award at the ESPYs last week. It, it makes no sense. I, and I get it. New Zealand, quite the time difference. Can they not start games at 10, 11 o'clock a.m.? The Red Sox play a game at 11 a.m. at least once a year. So I don't understand how FIFA thinks that starting games at 9 p.m. Eastern time is good for TV ratings, good for sponsorship. And they are having the U.S. play at, get this, 3 a.m. Eastern time in one of their group stage matches. Ryan Randoni, that is absurd. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And it's going to, you know, cost a viewership, LG. I think last night, you know, at 9 o'clock, People are tired. They want to go to, you know, prepare for bed at that time. And to, you know, when you get home, usually you expect a game to be on like at six or seven, or you would prefer on the summer a day game. And just, I think at 9 PM, it's so late people are tired and it's tough to follow through for the full game. So I think definitely changing the times would be much more beneficial because right now, I mean, it's just not great for viewership. And when the U S is the dominant power, in the Women's World Cup, you would expect that they would maybe tailor to U.S. viewers over some other countries because there's, I think, so many with how dominant of a team the U.S. is. Um, but they haven't been doing that. And I think the 3 a.m. time, too, is just absolutely ridiculous. I don't think it's a good look, especially for a country that wants to grow its soccer, um, you know, aura. And, th- and this isn't a knock on Australia and New Zealand, two countries that are without question on my bucket list, but... And this does, this is not just a U.S. issue, right? They should, if there isn't a way to cater to Great Britain's team, I'm sure they're not too happy with some of the games that are being played. Mexico, Canada, some countries like that, some in South America that made it. I'm not an expert on the Women's World Cup field per se, but it just feels like this isn't going to be a U.S. only issue. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I. I think though it's a main I think though it hurts the US the most though because of all countries like I said the US is the premier power in women's soccer right so they should ta- I they should tailor to the US the most in my opinion the fans right I think it it should be based on merit and should be a little bit earned those times and they haven't given the US I believe fair times I just feel like for a country that's you know earned it over the years I would expect better times than 3 a.m. Well, the Americans came into the Women's World Cup last night against Vietnam. It looked a little shaky at the beginning, Ryan. They were missing on a few straight-A opportunities, but in the end, got the job done, taking down Vietnam 
three nothing. I think more than anything, what you were worried about in this game was getting Megan Rapinoe and Rose Lavelle on the field, two players that have been injured for the past few months or so, didn't start, entered the game with, what, 30 minutes left, and got a good run out there. So you don't really want to burn them out early, especially when you've got the Netherlands coming up later in the week. But it's clear to me that they have some kinks to iron out before their next match. Do you know at the last time the U.S. opened the group stage what the score was? 13-0. 13 Thailand, right? Vietnam, it's their first World Cup. First World Cup ever. They're playing against premier power in the U.S. 3-0, it's a solid score, but I would expect a little bit more from this team. And they played great defensively. Vietnam had no shots, so not much better you can do in that category. But they did miss some shots, I think, throughout the entirety of the match. Everyone did. Nobody looked incredible. Um, there are plenty of chances to extend the advantage. And, um, you know, coming up and against some better group stage teams in the knockout stage, you're going to need to... Uh, you know, work on fixing those mistakes because three nothing against Vietnam. That's not gonna. That performance isn't gonna cut it later on when there's a lot of other great teams. I don't think, you know, I think this is probably one of the worst performances I've seen in uh, a group stage game for the U.S. in the last couple of World Cups. They just they didn't look clean. They missed opportunities. So I would say overall, there's a lot of working out they need to do. The thing I'll say is that I wasn't too thrilled when they ran it up to make it 13 nothing. I just don't think that's good sportsmanship. But you wanted to see better than what you saw last night. You had plenty of chances right in front of the net that Vietnam's goalkeeper... Vietnam's goalkeeper played one heck of a game. I'll give her that. But still, Alex Morgan missing a penalty kick not gonna mm -hmm. cut it late, not gonna cut it later on, especially when she is your premier player. And I think once you get to these tougher stages, the wear and tear is just gonna get even more so. I mean, there's a reason Rapino and Lavelle sat out the first 60 minutes of the game, and there's a reason the players that came out came out when they did. That you want to keep your big guns fresh for the big games. And as far as I'm concerned, this upcoming game against the Netherlands is a huge one. Yeah, I mean, the Netherlands are one of the obviously one of the best teams in this, you know, this World Cup. So I think it'll be a huge test for the U.S. I think they'll both get out of the group, obviously, but it's, oh, for sure. it's crucial that the U.S. obviously, you know, puts out a good performance. And especially with some lost momentum now, I think they've really got to step it up. They don't want to go be one and one traveling into the third game of the group stage with, you know, some lost momentum. So it's a huge contest for the U S in my opinion. And I don't, I didn't necessarily want them to run up the score LG, but at the same time, you kind of want to iron out the cobwebs in your first performance, right? I mean, you want to have something to carry into the next match is saying, okay, you know, we're on the right track because you haven't played in a bit. Um, so, I think, you know, I don't think it's running up the score. I think it's more of a thing where, you know, they should just iron out the cobwebs. And I think that was what they did against Thailand last time they played in a first group stage match and they couldn't do it this time. I You do make an interesting point how you can sort of experiment in those blowout games, but they didn't have the opportunity to experiment because it was only three to nothing, right? You had to, you couldn't really pull out some tricks that you ordinarily would in a game like this. And for the record, the U.S. Netherlands game Wednesday night at nine should be absolutely fascinating to watch. It could be the biggest game of the group stage, Ryan. Yeah, obviously, I think it will definitely be the biggest, 
match of the group stage. So I'm, I'm excited for it. And like I said, I think both teams will get out of the group, no doubt. And I think we could see possibly even, you know, down the line, a rematch. So It wouldn't surprise know. me at all. It yeah, would so, not surprise me at all. So it's a big match, a lot of big faces. It'll be exciting stuff. And, you know, it, it, with the way the U.S. played, obviously, you know, you could see it going either way right now. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. All right, moving on. Last weekend, we were treated to probably the best tennis match of this generation on either the men's or women's side when Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz had a five-set thriller and the Spaniard took his first Wimbledon title, snapping a streak of not one, not two, not three, four consecutive Djokovic wins at All England Long Club. Ryan, just... Take me through watching that match, just sp- more specifically that game in the third set where it went on for, what, half an hour because they kept on deucing? Yeah, well, I, what I'm just stunned about is how Elkaraz held his own in the later match. Djokovic has a long history, especially in Wimbledon, of coming back down a couple of sets, and he did as well. He was down 2-1. He won the fourth set, and it really felt like he had the momentum there, an experienced guy, and obviously he's someone who does so well. He's done so well on grass as of recent at Wimbledon. He's just dominated the tournament. So when he's going into that fifth fifth set, winning the, the last set, it really felt like he had it in his pocket. But, you know, Alcarez kept fighting. You mentioned that game, that one game that went on for a half an hour. Um, I think that's just a testament to how great of a player he is. I think he's on the up-and-coming. Um, but the way he just fought back against the Joker, especially when the Joker took that momentum in the fourth set, I mean, um, not many guys can do that. Not many have. So I think that was a, just a testament to how great of a player he was. And it's an incredible win because, like you said, it breaks a long streak of Joker's dominance in Wimbledon. There always seems to be one guy who dominates the grass, whether it was Pete Sampras, uh, Roger Federer, now it's Djokovic. Uh, so for Alcarez to steal a win is very impressive in terms of fighting back like you mentioned i think what stuck out most to me was in the first set djokovic djokovic looked like a completely different player than alcaraz in the first set it was six to one if you want to lay down your weapons after getting thoroughly beaten like that i mean i mean you could pass a little bit of blame but it wouldn't surprise anybody but to come back immediately in the second set get a crucial break when he needed it and then win the tiebreaker, that was ballsy. And then, obviously, where to begin with that third set? And then when Alcaraz had that key break of Djokovic in the fifth set to go up 2-0, Djokovic slammed, Djokovic broke his rat, rack. Oh, my God, racket. There we go. You don't see that a lot, especially from a conditioned player like Novak Djokovic. You only see it from the hotheads like Nick Kyrgios, of whom there are not many in tennis it, that's why it was so shocking when Djokovic did that. Controversial though he may be, he's usually exhibited some sort of grace on the court, except when he's hitting balls at line judges. So that's just, I couldn't, be, I couldn't believe that he was able to induce that kind of reaction from who has been the world's best over the last decade or so. And I really don't think there's a debate behind that. It almost felt to me, Ryan, like when... Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady met in the Super Bowl a few years ago, like this sort of passing of the torch type feel, except in Brady's case, he actually beat Mahomes because he's Tom yeah. Brady and Patrick Mahomes is overrated. I don't know about Alcaraz that. got it done. 
Alcaraz got it done. We are seeing the rise of someone who is going to dominate the sport for the next 10 years, perhaps. And Ryan, he's only 20 years old. He just turned 20 two and a half months ago. I'm older than him. That's insane. I think he's the future of tennis, but I don't want to say it's a passing the torch moment quite yet because let's remember who won the Australian Open, who won Roland Garros this year, right? The Joker is still dominant. I'll go so far as saying I'm a big tennis fan. I think he's the best tennis player I've ever seen in my life. I think he's better than Federer. I think he's better than Nadal. I think he's surpassed both of them. Um, So I don't think he's quite, you know, I think he's starting to enter his twilight, but he's not done quite yet. I think he still has at least a few more grand slams in here, in there at the bare minimum. Uh, so I'm not going to say it's like a passing of the torch. I just, I just think it's kind of like a new rival that's emerged for him. And I think we'll see these two guys compete a bit more often. Remember, this isn't Alcarez's first grand slam title either. So, well, I think we'll see a bit more of him in the future. And I think they'll have a couple of competitive matches down the road. Um, I don't think, though, the Joker has necessarily, you know, is necessarily done, though, in the grand scheme of things. I think we'll still see him win a few more uh, grand slams, um, especially uh, at Roland Garros and uh, Wimbledon. I think he'll win a few, uh, one or two more down the road. You brought up an interesting point how Djokovic has had the Australian and Roland Garros earlier this year. Who won the last U.S. Open? Alcaraz did. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. I think the U.S. Open is always the, you know, grand slam that has the most, you know, open field. Usually I feel like out of all the grand slams, it's usually, you know, the top players usually struggle the most at the uh, U.S. Open for whatever reason it be. Um, It's always a more open field and you always see a different guy, I feel like, emerge in the U.S. Open. So that could be the same case this year. Um, but yeah, we saw him last year uh, emerge victorious, and now he's carrying it into uh, Wimbledon, which is huge for him. Well, I know you're a big tennis fan. We'll need to get together come the U.S. Open. Yeah. There is no player in baseball right now that is a bigger spectacle than Shohei Otani. There may not be a bigger spectacle in baseball than Shohei Otani in our lifetimes. There may not be a bigger spectacle in all of sports than Shohei Otani in our lifetimes. So the fact that you have all these various outlets, whether it be MLB.com, Bleacher Report, Talking Baseball, or some other guy, coming up with these ludicrous trade requests for him that they actually think have a chance of working are just obscene. I've seen some guys say, like, oh, the Yankees are going to trade all the top prospects for Otani. And then they have Anthony Volpe in their quote-unquote projected lineup. I, I don't get it. I do not get it. Why would anybody? Anybody in their right minds even think about trading the best player of we have ever seen? It, it's absolutely ridiculous. The only place Otani is going is Disneyland on his off day in Anaheim. He's not going anywhere, all right? He's staying with the Angels. Like you said, he's the best player we've ever seen, at least in our generation. He'll go down as one of the best players of all time easily. He already basically is, right? I don't think they want to trade him. I think there's some teams who are interested, but I think too. I mean, why not make a face for yourself with the Angels? And I think, you know, some of these crazy trade proposals with him going to the Dodgers and the Yankees kind of take away from his maybe aura a bit. I know he would obviously be the face of the franchise, but I think, you know, making a name for himself with uh, the Angels would be a more interesting, you know, you know, 
I guess, scenario for his career. So I think he's staying put um, in L.A., and I think it'll be good down the future. I think he'll carry them, you know, to the playoffs and um, eventually. And I think he'll be a staple in their franchise. The only reason that these trade requests are even happening is because he is a pending free agent. And that's why you're throwing out all these ludicrous proposals like, can the Mets bring him back? Can they get some value for him, right? That's the that's the big question. And he has said out openly he wants to win. And the Angels have been cursed with an injury bug that they seemingly cannot get over. Trout went down a few weeks ago. Lord knows what's happened to Anthony Rendon's conditioning because he is always hurt. And their pitching just... I think mediocre is an appropriate word for it, Ryan. And yes, you. I hope he stays in. I hope he stays in LA. As a Red Sox fan who would love to see him in that uniform, I hope he stays in LA. He's he's making that team very marketable. Him and Trout. We haven't seen a superstar duo like that in baseball ever. That's like that's like if LeBron and KD teamed up in the NBA, or if Michael if Michael Jordan had joined forces with a young Kobe Bryant. Right? That's yeah. the type of duo that we are currently watching right now. I would hate to see that breaking up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're two of Trout is also, I think, one of the greatest, you know, players ever. You know, I so I mean to have them both, you know, right there is incredible. Now they obviously have to piece it together and win, which I mean they have been making strides to. I know Otani says he wants to win. Well, the Angels do have a winning record, and I think they've been making strides compared to what they've had obviously in the past few seasons you got to be happy with where you are even if there is mediocre pitching and there is some mistakes they're in the wild card race so you know i think they're competing and i think you know they're making strides in a good direction and a lot of that is with otani if trail can be healthy and you know be at his full potential i mean these two guys together uh could really do some damage um to come so i i, I hope they stay together because i mean to just have that those two extremely talented players on the same team is so rare. And like you said, it, it almost never happens in any sport, stuff like that. If God forbid Otani does get traded, let's just hope it isn't to one, right. of, one of the Yankees or Dodgers. Speaking yeah. of the former, they don't look good, Randoni. I know that the Yankees beat the Kansas City Royals last night. Ooh, congrats. You beat... One of, if not the worst teams in all of Major League Baseball. What do you do? No, just, just no, no, no. I mean, their lineup is a joke without Aaron Judge. They only have one guy with an OPS plus above 100, which, by the way, is league average. Stanton looks terrible. Torres looks eek. okay. Rizzo looks okay. Don't get me sorted with how bad Josh Donaldson has been for them. LeMahieu as well. And when your big pitching acquisition, Carlos Rodon, misses the first three months of the season and then immediately gets shelled and not one, not two, but three starts immediately after that and thinks it's a good idea to blow a kiss to the Yankees fans, arguably the most hostile fan base in all sports, you're asking for trouble. The Yankees are a little bit soft there, fans, LG. Let's be real here. They don't compare with the Red Sox fans in terms of... This is true. Oh, all right. You know, uh, they're not on that level. But uh, I think part of it, too, you know, everybody's, you know, struggling with the Yankees. It seems like they're hitting a string of bad luck. Usually 
when that happens, I think, you know, you got to look at coaching too. And I'm really surprised that the Yankees are so content to, you know, keep Aaron Boone. They have no apparent, you know, interest. So have in- I. I've been too for the past few years and I'm not complaining about it, but complaining about it either but from recent you know accounts they have no interest in looking for other coaches which stuns me you know I mean Aaron Boone was you know a solid player but you know he hasn't been a great coach he hasn't delivered for that team they've choked multiple times in the playoffs and they haven't you know been able to uh, exercise their demons when it counts so I mean I just I look at this and everybody's struggling I think it's a testament that maybe Boone is not the right guy for them but uh you know, they want to keep them. So, I mean, I guess they're just going to keep going down this road. Aaron Boone's tenure for each of the last five years has been marked by one thing and one thing only, and that's playoff failure, right? You get your butts handed to you by the Sox in 18. You lose to the Astros in 19, which I understand that they were still cheating then, we think, but you still lost two games at Yankee Stadium to them. 2020, you lose to an inferior race team in the ALDS, at least talent-wise. 21, you get beaten by the Red Sox in the wildcard game. And then in 2022, you get absolutely spanked by the Astros. It was not competitive at all. At all. And that's been the mark of Aaron Boone's postseason career as a manager. And there are no two teams right now that the Yankees fans hate more than the Red Sox and the Astros. So to lose to them both twice in that span is a really bad look for him to not get get over your demons. You know, I mean, they 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 really just haven't even, you know, been competitive in some of these playoff series. I think, you know, coming into last year, right, you really want to, you know you know, at least put up a competitive series with the Astros after everything that's happened in the last few years and you get, they lay an egg, right? The 4-0, I mean, that's, I just think, you know, it's bad coaching in my opinion and all that stuff. We knew, I remember they looked at, they uh, called on David Ortiz to, you know, talk to them when they were down 3-0. I just, you know, I think it's that's hilarious. Know, that's hilarious. I think he's in over his head. I don't think he knows what he's doing as a coach. So, um, I think he's the center of the problems. I think he's got to go because they do have some great talent. I mean, they've got Judge, they've got Stanton, they've got a lot of great guys. Um, None of them being able to piece it together, I think, is just a a management problem. A management problem, indeed. A lot of Yankee fans are calling for Brian Cashman's head right now. It's a marvel to me, similar to Boone, how he still has his job with the Yankees, man. They haven't been in the World Series in – going on 14 years they're probably not going to be there this year if if they miss the world series this year next season they will be guaranteed to at minimum tie the longest stretch in franchise history without a world series appearance how about that yeah yeah it's crazy i mean i guess the changing of the guard ever since 20 2009 things haven't gone their way um i don't you know it's just i think it's just been a lot of bad coaching um Ever since Tory left, I just think, you know, that's been maybe the main problem. But um, we'll see how it pans out for them in the future because it's not a good look right now for their franchise. I, I, actually, I think this is a great look, what's going on right now for the Yankees. I, you can disagree with me all you want. But elsewhere in the AL East, it seems as though the Tampa Bay Rays' Dell Magic has run out. They are currently neck and neck with the Baltimore Orioles in the AL East. Tampa was up by, what, six and a half, seven games at one point. But the young swinging Orioles with 
the likes of Rutschman, Gunnar Henderson, among others, have finally run him down and are now battled and are now deadlocked in a race for the AL East. Ryan, the race started out the season what twenty nine and seven. Since then, they've been playing five hundred ball. They they don't they do not have the same intimidation factor that they have at the start of the season end. It's all starting to make sense because when they played the Red Sox in June, granted, the Red Sox lost that series more than the Rays won that series. I look at guys in that lineup, but I think to myself, how? How? Names like Luke Rayleigh, Josh Lowe, do not scare people, yet somehow they have OPSs in the 900s. I think, well, it's, you know, more of a thing about, you know, how you, you know, it, it's a long season, right? So it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish. And I think a one good comparison to this team, I hate to bring up the Red Sox, but 2021, you kind of look at where the Red Sox had that extremely hot start and then they kind of, you know, you know, slithered out towards the middle of the season, you know, kind of came back down to reality. Um, I expected it to happen because, again, you can't expect, you can't really continue such a hot start throughout the entirety of the season just how hot they were um i'm excited to see the orioles though you know get to the top of the division it's great for baseball to see a team like baltimore really i think you know get up there and compete and have a serious chance at you know competing for maybe a world series berth so it'll be exciting in the future um i think though you know the way the rays are playing though and we talked about otani a little bit i think you know if they want to you know pieces together again and get back into the race, then they're going to maybe need to, you know, compete for someone like Otani if they want to get back in this thing, because the way they're playing right now, they won't be able to carry momentum into the playoffs. No, they won't. And I think you bring up a fascinating point with Otani because his name has come up in trade proposals. And if any team were to have the prospects to pull off a trade for him, it would be a team like Tampa Bay. But that's just not the Tampa Bay way, right? Every time yeah. they bring in this hot shot, he usually doesn't end his career. I mean, the only exceptions to this point are Tyler Glass now and Wander Franco. Franco just signed that mega extension a few years ago, and Glass now's hurt all the time. So you have to wonder if they have expiration dates in Tampa solely because that's just how Tampa does things. Arena is another guy as well. You have to wonder if he's going to play out the remainder of his contract in a raised uniform. It's not the Tampa Bay way, but if they are changing, good for them. I hope they're not because, honestly, Ryan, my hate list right now, Yankees one. I think it's Tampa Bay at number two. Oh, that's tough. I would say Yankees one. I think the Astros are up there, too. I think the this Astros. Is, this is number three for me. I think the Astros have a better rivalry with the Red Sox because it's actually been competitive. Whereas, you know, you know, you look at the Astros and Yankees, that's like a one-sided rivalry. I think the Red Sox and Astros are kind of a cool rivalry that's brewing a bit, in my opinion. So I would put the the Astros too. Um, after that, I would say either Blue Jays or Rays. You could you could put the Rays up there. Um, yeah, I don't hate the Orioles. I'm excited to see the Orioles towards the top. I think it's cool to you know you know, see their rise. Um, but yeah, I'll put Yankees one, Astros two. As I said, talking about Baltimore, though, they're the one team in the AL East that I seemingly can't root against because for the past, what, four or five years, with the exception of last year, they have been at the pit of misery of Major League Baseball. 
and all of a sudden they get hot last year and make a run in the playoff world, ultimately missing out. But now the pieces are falling into place, and they are a World Series contender right here and right now. I think what they're going to do at the trade deadline, Ryan, is absolutely fascinating because for all the success they're having at the big league level right now, they still have one of the top farm systems in baseball. Still. So could you make a run for Dylan Cease or Luis Robert? Because if anything, they need starting pitching. I know a guy who fills that mold. His name is Shohei Otani. Hopefully he's not getting traded there. But you get a guy like Cease, you prove that you're in it to win it right here and right now. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I don't think the Otani thing is going to happen, but I think, you know, they're one, you know, pitcher away, one guy away from, you know, really, you know, competing for um, a title, like you said right now. I mean, they are competing for a title, but I think, you know, they still might need one more piece to compete, you know, with, you know, some of the NL teams like the Braves. Uh, but if they get that extra piece, my, oh, my, they're going to be fun to see. And it's going to be, I mean, come playoff time, they're going to be really scary. Uh, I mean, because they they're already really talented. And if they get those extra pieces, they're not going to have many weak spots. Two more teams that could be scary come playoff time. Play where the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. And Texas baseball in not one, but two locations is kind of hot right now. The Astros have started to pick things up after a mulky stretch. Kyle Tucker had a three-home run game last night against Oakland, but still impressive nonetheless. And the Rangers might have the best offense in all of baseball. I mean, Semyon and Seager have done what they do over the years. Adolis Garcia has taken a huge step forward this year. But it's the unsung guys like Josh Young, the rookie third baseman, and the catcher Jonah Heim that have seemingly carried that or vaulted them into next-level contention, per se, Ryan. And I think right here, right now, if the Rangers pitching – is at their A game, they can beat anybody. I think they can be any beat anybody. I think at the same time, though, I hate to dis disagree with you. I think the Astros are going to come up and take that spot. I like the way they've been playing as of recent. I think they're st starting to get back into form. I think with their experience, with all the talent they have, I think they're going to overtake the Rangers in the division standings. I think it will be a close race, um, but I think the Astros have it. I think it reminds me a bit, this race, kind of like the uh, the Dodgers-Giants uh, a few years ago a bit, and I think the uh, Astros are poised to uh, take it over uh, just because they do have more experience, but I love the way the Rangers are playing. They're very, they're very talented. They've got a great offense. Um, they've got a pretty solid pitching rotation, even though it's not perfect. So um, I think you give it, you know, a couple, kind of like the Orioles, give it a couple, a little bit of time. And I think this team's going to be very dangerous come the future. So I never said that. I just said they can beat anybody. I never said that they were going to win the division. And unfortunately, I hate to admit it, but I agree with you. I think Houston's going to overtake them. The Astros yeah. fell with injuries to Altuve and Alvarez. They're probably two best hitters. For much of the season, and they're pitching with Bromber Valdez, Hunter Brown, Christian Javier, has sort of carried the load. And if you thought for a second that the Astros were going to fall off pitching-wise without the ace that is Justin Verlander and with an injured Lance McCullers, that's not how they do things in Houston. They It's like a factory down there. Every time someone leaves, they bring in this new stud that can throw gas. And this year, it's seemingly Hunter Brown. J.P. France is another guy that's been good for them. 
I, I hate to admit it, but I don't know how to do it. And I wish the Red Sox could do stuff like that with the state of their pitching rotation right now, only really having three starters, four if you include Nick Pavetta, throwing five, six innings out of the bullpen every five games. But I hate giving credit to them, but they deserve all the credit in the world for how everyone hoped they were going to turn into this pumpkin after the cheating scandal. But if anything, it's made them even stronger. Yeah, I think they've, you know, just focused, you know, on the basics of the game. I think they were able to drain out all the sound that whole time and maybe even use it a bit as, you know, motivation uh, for their team. They still had all the talent in the in the world on their team, and they brought in, you know, a good manager who, who was looking to win a World Series, who was, you know, obviously experienced. So they had everything, you know, I think they had all the pieces in place. Um, it was just about, you know, I think draining out the scandal and, you know, the solid farm system went a long way for them. So, um, yeah, I don't see them going away anytime soon, LG. I hate to be real with you, but I think they're a contender for a while. So do I. I don't know if they'll make that seventh straight ALCS this year, but they're not going away anytime soon. No. They're, they haven't hit dynasty status yet, A, because they cheated for one, B, because – for a dynasty, under my standards at least, you need at least three rings over a five, six, seven-year period. But they're pushing it. They're pushing I, it. Baseball, though, with the wild card, the ex- expanded wild card, it's so tough to win, um, you know, consistently. You really see it happen now in these days. Um, so I think, you know, if they get another one, even though it's like two real rings, you could consider it possibly a dynasty because it's so tough in baseball to to win consistently compared to other sports like basketball or even football. Just be just because, you know, you play a full season and it comes down to like a quick wild card series or a quick divisional series. So if they could win one more, I think that that's, you know, it's pushing dynasty. Only time will tell. Hopefully not, though. All right. Last thing today, the Arizona Diamondbacks held a firm-ish NL West lead for a bit of the time there, Randoni, when the Dodgers were struggling, their bullpen looked awful. That is no more. L.A. has surpassed both Arizona and San Francisco to take a slim but decent-sized lead in the NL West. Arizona seems to have fallen off a bit. Their pitching isn't what it was in the front half of the season, but they're still a scary team. San Francisco doing what it seemingly does every other year, coming out of nowhere to be a feisty competitor. But the Dodgers might be back, Ryan. They might be back. Um, I don't know. You know, I still I feel like there's a lot of inconsistencies with the team a bit, like you said, the pitching, and they're getting better. Um, but I don't know if they're necessarily what they used to be in terms of Dodgers standards. Um, I think, you know, I think they'll be competitive, but I, I I think it's another management thing with, you know, Roberts. I hate to be that guy, but I don't I don't love him, you know. Surprised he's still there. Yeah, I'm surprised he's still there. Just with the amount of talent they've had over the years, you know, hitting wise, and they, they haven't been able to piece it together too much. Um, so I don't think they're quite what they are. I think, you know, they've got the division intact. Um, but I don't know if they're necessarily gonna be a competitor. Um, in the NL, I think it's between honestly the Braves, and I look at a couple NL Central teams as my who I would put for my, you know, top like competitors in the uh, NL. Um, but you know, the Dodgers couldn't make a playoff run. We'll see. 
the Dodgers have lost a lot over the last few seasons, whether we, whether it's highlighted or not. They lost Seager to the Rangers. They've lost Kenley Jansen this past offseason. They lost both both the Turners, Trey and Justin, among others. They lost Craig Kimbrell. He went to one of their main competitors in Philly. It's that being said, it speaks to their management and analytics department that they've been able to have this sustained success over the last decade or so. I mean, only two players have played in each of the last nine postseasons. Those players are Justin Turner and Kenley Jansen. Well, they got a whole lot of where money. They, what? They do spend a lot of money. But where they did have- they spend the majority of those careers? LA. And spending, Ryan, spending money does not guarantee you anything. You want yeah, to know that? You want to know how it, money. You want to know how I know that spending money doesn't guarantee anything? Who has the highest payroll in baseball right now? The is it the Yankees or is it the Dodgers? It's neither. It's the New York Mets, and oh, they are really? under five hundred right now, in the middle of a game against the Red Sox. So, going to be fun to see them hopefully lose two today. Them being the Mets, so it doesn't guarantee, but it certainly helps. To it have. certainly helps you, but if you go around wasting it like the Mets have seemingly done had in the last you know five or so years oh, sorry look at all the talent they've had in the last five or so years yeah how, how many rings have they won? Oh yeah one and it was probably the most asterisk ring of all time in any sport <laughs> i'm just saying i think it, it certainly helps them a lot in you know i think if you give you know small market teams that opportunity they would you know shoot back up i'm sure know. they would i'm sure they yeah. would Kansas City would love that, you know, but um yeah, I I I think a lot of it their success has to do with the payroll. That's just my thoughts on it, but I mean, you're definitely right, but there is some smarts to that, you know. If if they're in a small market, do they win the title at all? Probably not. No. No. Probably it, not. It, no, it would not have happened. In okay. my opinion. Any final thoughts before we say so long? I think the Red Sox are going to make a bit of a push during. I like what I like where they're going, LG. I hope I hope they I hope they buy. I hope they buy at the deadline. I think they're piecing it together. I think they're a couple of moves away from maybe being a competitor. That's what I want to say. Starting pitching, starting pitching. That's what we need. We need we need a bit more uh, di- diversity in the pitching staff. Um, we don't have enough guys right now, so that is a uh, um, a definite need. You are speaking truth there, brother. With Ryan Randoni, I'm Liam Griffin. Follow us on Instagram at Full Court Press Podcast and on Twitter at Full CP Podcast. That's F U L L C P Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.